It's the True Penny Show with your host James True Penny. Celebrate the life and at times Terry D. Funk, Funker, the hardcore legend himself. And who better to join me to discuss this? Mr. John Dinsdale. How are you doing, sir? I'm pretty good. Again, it's kind of sad that we're talking about this under such circumstances, but like, hey, we're going to celebrate one of the best damn wrestlers there ever was, sir. Absolutely. I think, to be honest, there might be some tears by the end of this for me. Because Terry Funk has been part of my wrestling life since I first heard him on screen in 1989 um, when I would get ITV wrestling stopped. And then in late 1989, WCW started to be shown. And by various aerial movements, though we lived in the Yorkshire television area, we got the first run on Yorkshire television. Then about six weeks after that, we got a run on Tyne Tees. And we was able to move the aerial to find Midlands. And I still have tapes of that stuff <laughs> um, because of, um, because of uh, what's the word, judicious uh, aerial placement. And he was commentating on the NWA Power Hour with Chris Bruce. And I heard him say some incredible things. And he just never stopped putting wrestlers over. You know, he was a, he was kind of a tweener at that point. He'd just come off the heel run, which we'll talk about shortly. Um, but had been turned on by Gary Hart and the JTEX Corporation and was spinning some truths about his fellow former heel friends. And it was incredibly entertaining. And he had a transfixing voice, even though he was incredibly soft-spoken. As he wrestled, as he commentated on matches with the Z-Man, Norman the Lunatic, <laughs> Cactus Jack, amazingly, and Nature Boy Ric Flair. Um it's it was an interesting time in professional wrestling, but Terry Funk is an interesting man. He started his career in Amarillo, Texas, under the auspices of his elder brother Dory Funk Jr. and his father Dory Funk Sr. Dory Funk Sr. was the king of the Texas Deathmatch. He wrestled once, wrestled Mike DiBiase, Ted DiBiase's dad, Million Dollar Man's dad, in a main event that lasted three hours in a Texas Deathmatch. That was the only match on the card. They wrestled for three hours in the Texas death match, which will tell you how tough a son of a bitch he was. Dory, of course, absolutely, arguably the smoothest wrestler of all time. Brian Danielson states to this day, if he could wrestle like anyone for the rest of his life, it would be Dory Funk Jr. And then there's Terry Funk. And Dusty Rose once said an absolutely true thing, which I think is probably the best way to explain the Funk brothers. He said, Dory could wrestle in a town one night and everyone would give him a stand innovation. Terry would wrestle there the next night and he'd cause a riot. And I think that sums up Terry Funk. He was a man who knew how to press every button there was, but it wasn't always that way. The beginning of his career, he was pretty much a straight-up wrestler. And that's where we're going to start our watching of him. We have done a playlist, which we will tag you along so you can see, as we always do. And we're going to start in Tokyo, Japan. We're gonna start at the former Sumo Hall, not the current Sumo Hall, the former Sumo Hall. And he's wrestling Jumbo Saruta as NWA heavyweight champion of the world. John, what's your thoughts on this match and what's your thoughts on the Thunker at this stage in his career? It's ridiculous just how smooth Terry Funk is in this match. Like, 
he was always a gifted grappler, but obviously when I came to it, he was more of a hardcore wrestler, and I've seen him through the late years, but just watching him like smoothly transition and doing a rolling death cradle, I love that that was even a like a big move in 76, before Tekken ever existed. But yeah, we got a great match here. It's a lot of grappling, and obviously gets more physical as time goes on, and we've obviously got more falls in it. It's sort of the closest you see to... Funk is just a straight-up grappler. There's still some of that edge, and there's still some of the vicious strikes, but yeah, these mainly submission work and grappling. It's pretty impressive to watch. And again, somehow not boring. <laughs> it's just not, is it? I mean, now don't get me wrong. Wrestling in the 70s of all companies and all countries, all everywhere around the world, wasn't necessarily riveting television. But this is Jumbo Saruta. He was one of the first guys to go to America. He trained under the Funk Brothers. You know, he was um, one of Baba's chosen men. Um, the three chosen men, if you will, Jumbo Saruta, uh, Tenru, and Atsushi Anita all went and trained under the Funk Brothers. Um, so it is very much teacher versus student in this particular match. And Jumbo was one of the first guys to go from Japan to the States and be a babyface because he was just that good. You know, the fans didn't couldn't turn on him because he was just technically sound. Um, and the fact that he's challenging for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship in 1976, two years after All Japan started, or four years after All Japan started, and he was in the first dojo class of All Japan Pro Wrestling, will tell you what a great job Terry Funk and Dory Funk did with training him. Um, and yeah, this is this is just superb work. Just like smooth, fast. It's kind of um, we've watched a lot of these matches from this particular era. I mean, we, myself and Dara did the, the tribute to Superstar Billy Graham not long ago, and it's very kind of of that time. But it's the blueprint for what main event wrestling in the eighties and the nineties would become. You know, this is best of three four, so it kind of dates it a little bit. You won't get that. In, well, you don't get that in any of the, I think the Max match. Uh, but yeah, this is um, this is incredible to watch, really. Just just from a, a sheer level of pacing, it's a wrestling lesson. The level of pacing, how to work a best of three falls match. Got David Crockett there from uh, Jim Crockett Promotions. That's Jim Crockett's son, um, who would play another role in Terry Funk's life as the boss of WCW for quite some time. Um, yeah. This this was so much fun to watch and kind of such a different take on what Terry Funk was about um, as the NWA heavy, World's Heavyweight Champion. Yeah, and, I don't think I can pile onto that. You kind of summed it up perfectly. Yeah, you, you kind of need to watch it. It's difficult for us to do it justice with this one because it's so different from what the Terry Funk you expect. And to be honest with you, as you watch through this playlist, there's a lot of like, it's going at two levels. Because you've got kindly Uncle Terry, who makes appearances all the way through this playlist, and middle-aged and crazy Uncle Terry. <laughs> and this is kind of both guys together on an even footing. It's like the two characters, his baby face persona and his heel persona, it's come adrift not long after losing the NWA Heavyweight Championship. Because he has to find a different angle to make money. You know, he, uh, from what um, Dave Meltzer was saying, basically his wife 
was not happy as him being NWA heavyweight champion because that meant he never spent any time at home at all because you just don't. That was the way of things back then. If you were the NWA World Heavyweight Champion, you wrestled six times a week and twice on Sunday, 52 weeks of the year. That was the deal. You're the biggest wrestler on earth. You're the highest paid wrestler on earth. You have to do the work to back that up. And Terry's wife just never saw him. And um, Vicky, who sadly passed away a couple of years ago, um, did threaten to leave him. So he gave up the NWA world title essentially to save his marriage, um, which I think is what you see an awful lot of. There's a lot of symbolism in this time period. Um, he took the title off of... Um, how did you take the title off of? I've got it on here. <laughs> uh, do, 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 do. Jack Briscoe. Yeah, he took the heavyweight championship from Jack Briscoe. And in a very symbolic movement, the, the, he was spurred, Jack Briscoe was supposed to again, defend against Dory. Dory wasn't available, so he defended against Terry. Terry took the title. And um, after that match, Jack walked out to the bridge, um, to the river, um, where the, 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 I think it were, they were in Louisville, so it would have been the Mississippi. So he walked out to the Mississippi River, took off his wristwatch and threw it in the river because he didn't have to watch the clock anymore. He was no longer responsible for the entire NWA. Now it was Terry's job. And by all accounts, he was a big drawing, responsible heavyweight champion. Of the time, he you think about those guys, Jack Briscoe, Harley Race, Terry Funk, they all were all guys who had to go. You did not want to lose a barroom fight because you would get fired. <laughs> so it had to be guys who could go, had to be tough guys who knew what they were doing to defend themselves, and it had to guys who could draw. And Terry was the total package, as good as it got, because that's what you needed to be NWA World's Heavyweight Champion. Now, the next match on our playlist features, indeed, Harley Race. We're moving forward um, into... 1977, it's the following year. Race had beaten Funk for the title and was starting in the, the full length of his mega reigns. Uh, we're in the Sam Houston Coliseum. So we're working for Paul Bosch in this particular instance. He was a big fan who liked heavyweight championship matches on his cards. This is two best of two out of three fours for a 60-minute time limit between handsome Harley Race and Terry Funk for the NWA World's Heavyweight Championship. And this one is a much more American-style wrestling match in the sense of there's shenanigans going on in this particular match. Having said that, it's also kind of in a similar vein to what we saw in Japan. Still taken very seriously, still taken as a sporting event. What do you think of this one, John? Yeah, much in the same vein as the match before. It's a much smoother Terry Funk, but there's a lot more vicious strikes because it's Harley. he's fighting Harley Ray, so it's like, right, we're just going to go in here and beat the shit out of each other. We'll try and out-wrestle each other, beat the shit out of each other, give the people a proper title match. And that's exactly what you get. Another surprisingly compelling match for 42 minutes. Yeah, it doesn't really slow down, does it? This was kind of of... This is an of-the-era match in the sense of this was the main event you would get on a regular basis. But it's not boring to watch in any spots, is it? You know, No, they've both got quite a clip to them. And again... Once the grappling sort of wears, then they just start pummeling each other. I mean, you you can look at matches like the Akada Omega best of three falls match is very similar to this in layout and intensity, but they were having to start at a fairly high pace because they had such a legacy <laughs> from the previous match that they were just like, oh, we're going to have to go. Whereas this, 
Of course, Race and Funk have the advantage of no one in that building will have seen this match before because they just wouldn't have done because it would have happened in St. Louis or it would have happened in New York or it would have happened in Miami, but it wouldn't have happened in Houston. So every time they were working, they could kind of go back on what they'd done before to make things work if they could, if they had the chance, if they had the opportunity. But this is this feels like a big match. It has big match feel, even though we have the legacy of knowing what Harley Race and Terry Funk did with their careers now, some 40 years later. Sorry, 50 years later, 45 years later, shall we say. You know, there's, there's still a lot of heft to what's going on with these two in this particular ring. And a lot of that is down to Harley Race's pacing, Terry Funk's, you know, reality. That's the thing. That's the believability of Terry Funk in everything he's doing is what stands out to me about Terry. Oh, yeah. He was like a masterful performer, masterful seller, masterful striker, masterful everything. It was a case of anything he did, it had a reason to it, even if it looked like it had no reason. <laughs> See, we're three minutes in. And they haven't, they've only just had one collar and elbow tie up. <laughs> you know, it's because they're taking their time, setting their stall out. And like, I'm not saying you don't get this nowadays. You do very often. But this is kind of like, you know, this is how you, that's how you make things work. And they're so good at it. It's just poetry emotion to watch. I do find it hilarious that the next match in the playlist is the total opposite of this. I think we should probably move on because this is ex exactly, well, this essentially is the day the Funks became baby faces, to be honest with you. <laughs> we are in 1979. We are at the Strongest Determination Tag League final. Dorian Terry Funk against Abdullah the Butcher in the Sheik, the original Sheik, as we should say. This one's for all the marbles. Tournament final. And Terry and Dory, who had always been heels in all Japan, or at least tweeners, shall we say, are suddenly the biggest baby faces you will find anywhere. <laughs> like, you don't find people this over in wrestling, ever. Because I have never seen, I mean, this, the next time you see anything like this in Japan is like the Road Warriors. They're that over. Um, you have a nice little highlight package of uh, Waho McDaniel and Chief J Strongbow going up against Abdullah and the Sheik, which must have been an unpleasant experience for all involved. Because, <laughs> you know, Wahoo didn't like running the ropes, so he didn't. <laughs> if you try pushing the ropes, he'll just stand there and look at you. Um, then we have Baba and Saruta, Jumbo Saruta against Abdullah and Sheik, and that's wild. Uh, Shake's just Shake's just carrying a table around looking to hit somebody. <laughs> As you do. As you do. It's it's it just goes all the way through the tournament. And the actual match itself resembles much more of a wrestling match than you would think. Um, because they put pace into it. It's not very long. This whole video is 32 minutes long, and it takes the it takes Terry and Dory a good three minutes to get to the ring because the fans are that into them. Like, they're that over, they're screaming and shouting, and they've got a cheerleading section. There's a sign that says Terry Funk, the Texas Bronco, Dory Funk, the Texan, the best tag team in the tournament. 
You know, they, they, they are struggling to get to ringside. And you've got the classic Funk Brothers theme tune, which is just so funky. It's just amazing. It sticks in my head all week. It's ace. <laughs> What's your thoughts on this match, John? Yeah, it's wild. You've got everyone in full-on work mode. There's fork stabbing, table throwing, chair throwing, ambushes and everything. And yet there's still a lot of great wrestling connecting it before Abdullah just starts stabbing everyone again. There's shenanigans are playing. It's just really fun. It's more of the match you know Funk for, but still manages to maintain some of its like proper wrestling edge. As you said, it's not just the usual barbaric fare there's some pacing to it but my god it's fun to watch especially as Abdullah just keeps sneaking forks out he's like oh got another one stab (laughs) (laughs) just I just makes me smile it's just that much fun to this match and I like I'm watching Dory and Terry trying to get to the ring and they just cannot get through the people who love them that much they're just the funniest Kara? I was going to say one of the funniest moments for me is just like the ref's got his back turned so Abdullah starts biting Funk and then the ref turns around again and he's just like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I skipped it on a bit and like, there's like Terry choking Abdullah so Abdullah just stabs him in the head with a fork. And it's just, it's Peter Takashi who's the referee. Having a hard time is the best way of describing this. You know, Sheik reaching over the top rope just to punch Terry in the head. It's the ultimate babyface move as well from Terry. It's just screaming and bleeding and waiting for the opportunity until Dory comes in and slows everything down with a sleeper. And then it's on to being a proper wrestling match to try and get a win. And they managed to get the win. Um, I'm just remembering how they got the win. But they win with a wrestling hold. That's the key thing, isn't it? You know. They're not winning with violence or disqualifications. They actually won with a wrestling hold. But it is just like oppressive, like wrestling in one sense, in the way that Sheik and Abdullah just go after their opponents. Um, and you can tell it's such a, such a, oh yeah, Texas, um, sorry, spinning toe hold. That's where the wind comes from, isn't it? Um, it's just such a visceral experience in the match. And it goes back to the believability that Dory and Terry have. And, you know, because against, against monsters like Abdullah and um, the original Sheik, it's easy sometimes to get lost in that mystique and not be what you are as wrestlers. But Terry and Dory never had that problem. No, you remembered them. You got lost in their work just as much as anyone they were ever facing. Exactly. Oh, we're coming up to the finish now, I remember now. Abdullah takes a big swing, hits Sheik in the face with the throat with a fork. Dory gets a cover. There you go. And you got Tag League Champions. And the camera's shaking. Shaking from the cheers from the audience. So there you go. That was the match that made the Funk Brothers, or well, much more famous, but also much more over in Japan. And kind of a touchstone match for them in their career. The next match we're going to talk about is also a touchstone match in Terry Funk's career. And arguably... The match was most talked about in his early career before his ECW run. You know, wrestling is always about recency bias. And ECW happened 30 years ago and this happened, well, 20 years ago. And well, no, 30 years ago now. (laughs) And this happened 40 years ago. So it's 1981. 
we're in the Memphis Coliseum. There's 11,000 people watching Terry Funk go with Jerry Lawler for the Southern Heavyweight Championship, like they did Monday night after Monday night. And they kept turning up every Monday night to see Jerry Lawler either get beat up or to beat somebody up. And this is the simple premise of this. Terry Funk has a full-on middle-aged and crazy heel going up against the hometown hero of all hometown heroes, Jerry Lawler, Jerry Lawler in the Memphis Coliseum. What's your thoughts on this one? They just beat the hell out of each other. It, it's just straight-up shit-kicking match. It's, a, it's like it's hilarious because it says, bloody no DQ match. Jerry Lawler versus Terry Funk. And she's like, yep, I've never seen a more accurate description of a match, to be honest. It's it's just brutality sort of personified. There's a lot of leg work, a lot of punches in the face, and just, yeah, a lot of blood and violence. It's brilliant. I mean, this feud was so successful, they took it all over the place. They didn't just do it in Memphis, they did it in Florida as well. This was like, promoters were were hankering after this. Because Lola wouldn't spend all of his time in Memphis, you know, how can you miss me if I'm always there? So as the old wrestling adage goes. So he would go off and do occasional feuds elsewhere. Um, and because he had such a good connection with fans, he was often the baby face. And because Funk had such a good connection with, you know, not being popular, <laughs> knew how to press the right buttons, he was always the heel. There is the famous promo in Florida of um, Funk trying to explain to, to Lola what a Florida cracker is. And he poured an entire can of oil into his hair to explain how you have to grease down your hair to be a proper Florida cracker. Um, one of those ro- long, rambling promos that Terry would come out with <laughs> that somehow still had you fascinated, <laughs> even though you didn't quite understand where he was coming from. But this was the start of things. We have the escalation of things to come. Uh, but for now, we're just at the beginning, and it's one hell of a beginning, isn't it? It's ridiculous to consider that the beginning ended with Lawler essentially just breaking Funk's leg with a chair so he can't get back into the ring. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to start that. Can't eat me if you can't walk. No, that's it. You know, it's just, you know, I mean, Lawler's not a great mat technician, let's be honest. And I'm sure he wouldn't, you know, disagree with that. But this is proof that you don't need it in front of that particular audience. And what he and Jerry Jarrett did in te- in Memphis is just unreal, considering the effects they got with so little effort, but it was exactly in the right place. Also, shout out to Jimmy Hart in this match. <laughs> Jimmy Hart is like one of the best managers ever. And I don't think he gets, he doesn't get as much props as like Bobby Heenan does, and quite rightly, because Bobby Heenan was arguably the best manager of all time. Uh, but Jimmy, his ability to be just annoying is just staggeringly good. And an absolute company man. Even when he wasn't working for WWE, if he went and did a charity appearance, he would go to Stanford um, and go to the warehouse and say, have you got anything I could give the kids? And they would, any old stock T-shirts they'd have, he'd go and collect 30 or 40 T-shirts from Stanford, and then go do a charity do with, um, you know, uh, disabled children and just give away stuff. And, you know, WWE um, merchandise guys were happy to get rid of it because he wanted, he just loved wrestling and he still loves the company and still wants to do things for them, even though he's not an on-screen talent anymore. And he wants people to enjoy wrestling. And, you know, 
I love Jimmy Hart for that um, and for his wrestling career. Um, but yeah, this match is violent <laughs> in a different level of violence, especially when you're seeing Funker on the on the as the protagonist, shall we say? But speaking of protagonists, our next match on this playlist is the protagonist of all protagonists, Bruiser Brody. This is against Terry Funk. We're, they, I would say, around about 982, so a little bit after the Lawler match. So whilst he's the hottest heel in the South, he's the biggest babyface in Japan, Bruiser Brody is just making a name for himself in Japanese rings in all Japan. Stan Hansen has come over from New Japan Pro Wrestling. Um, Brody's long-term friend and tag team partner. Um, Brody had gone with him, actually. Brody had, Brody, Brody had had a falling out with Inoki, if I remember correctly, and hence the reason why Giant Baba came a-calling and swept him and Stan Hansen away to World Japan Pro Wrestling. Um, but this is kind of like top-line babyface versus top-line heel. Amarillo versus West Texas State. There's so many layers to this match of a story you could tell in an American kind of uh, idiom. But in Japan, it's about match quality and effort. And we all know that. It's about strength of heart. And that's what this match is about. This is just before the forever retirement. Um, and this is perhaps the Texas Bronco at his absolute height as a baby face in Japan. It does not get any bigger than this, especially against Bruiser Brody. What's your thoughts on this one, John? Yeah, again, it's just another joyous like encounter because you've got two mad bastards just again going hell for leather with it. Like Funk selling his heart out, Brody's a monster, and you've just got all this really fun back and forth between the two of them before it just descends into utter madness as everyone else decides to get involved as well. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's like, bruises. oh, what's that? Sorry, because they're just watching it now, and Bruiser's coming down to ring swinging a chain. That's how we get started. Yeah. <laughs> Brody is in full on Brody mode. It's like the madman is out, and he's not going to be playing nicely. No, this is it. This is you know, but he knows again. He knows he can go with Terry as well. Terry's going to give back as much as he gives him, so they're free to move really in this particular matchup, and. Clash wrestling match? No. Intensity? Yes. Over with the crowd? Unbelievably so. Essentially, as both wrestlers are heels, except for Terry's just wrestles as a heel, but is absolutely beloved. And Brozy, Brody is on his way to being beloved as well, though he's really a heel too. And then you have some added attractions of Stan Lariat Hansen and, and uh, Dory Funk towards the end of the match to make things swing along a little wilder too. Because the match wasn't insane enough to begin with, we've got to just pour more gasoline on that fire. <laughs> I can't even remember the result. Was there no contest? Or was... Yeah, because everyone just jumps each other. Yeah, I think I guess this was set in for a tag team match later on down the line, wasn't it? Really? Even, even Saruta comes out to help, if I remember correctly. Yeah, Brody and, um, Brody and Stan kind of get the top. Like, kind of get over the top on, on the, the front brother. So Jumbo comes out to save his trainers, <laughs> solidifying them as baby faces as well, obviously. Um, this one, we don't, I didn't put the forever retirement speech on this because for me, it's actually very, 
what's the word? It's very emotional. And we were trying to concentrate on the wrestling. And as well, it kind of undid Terry because when he did go back to Japan, he couldn't be as big as he was because he'd gone back on his word, which is obviously a big thing with Japanese fans. But this is about as good as it gets for the Funker in this period, I think, as far as match quality is concerned, just over, so over, just screaming constantly from fans. It's just amazing. So well worth a watch. Shall we move on, sir? Yes, because we've got one of the funniest moments next, to be honest. And one of the most realistic, I've got to say. Um, I'd never heard of this match until the late, great Scott Bowden um, of Kentucky Fried Wrestling. It was a manager in Memphis in the 1990s um, and who I emailed a lot back and forth as we both were wrestling writers. He used to, he used to write for uh, Kevin Smith's website called Quick Stop. Uh, thequickstop.com, which was from the Clarks movie, which was a cultural website. And one of the cultural things that Kevin did on the website was was wrestling. And he got Scott to write for to write about wrestling. And I emailed Scott a lot back and forth uh, through the early 2000s. And we came email buddies and I kept checking on him. Unfortunately, he passed away a couple of years ago at a very young age. He was only 45. Um, but as a wrestling fan and as a manager and a referee, his knowledge of Memphis wrestling, which he grew up in with Memphis, um, was just absolutely bar none, you know, because he lived it. You know, he went to school with Kevin Lawler. <laughs> you know, he was he was there. And this was one of his favorite moments in, in Memphis wrestling. Um, this match is the empty arena match. And it's Terry Funk and Jerry Lawler. They just turn up in the Memphis Coliseum. Lance... Russell is there because Terry Funk's asked somebody to record it to show that it actually happened. And this is to further the story between Funk and Lawler. And it's a brawl. Of course it's a brawl. There's no referee. And the match just descends into violence and chaos and ends when Terry Funk gets accidentally stabbed in the eye with a piece of wood that he'd broken off and Lawler had used against him. But everything about this is believable. You know, Lance Russell has as much a part to play in this match because he is the audience. He essentially is the audience. He essentially is the timekeeper and he essentially is the referee. And you forget how great Lance Russell was at presenting television. You know, he is the commentator here. He was also the weatherman and he was the executive producer for the local TV news program, to local TV news show as well. You know, he knew television from top to bottom and how to present wrestling on television better than anyone else in this era, probably apart from Vince McMahon. Oh, and um, Gary Hart and uh, Kevin uh, Fritz von Erich. He knew exactly where to put cameramen, what to do, how to present this match, which is the ultimate gimmick match. You know, how do you sell a match with no audience? What's the point? Um, and this just blows my mind every time I look at it. Just the pacing, Terry talking to camera and talking to Lance Russell. Um, you know, this is just, this is wrestling perfection. If you're looking for American style wrestling to tell a story as a dramatic event, this is it. This is the blueprint for everything you need. There's no audience to react to. They're not just having a pull around, um, as wrestlers would say, they are performing something that has to make sense and be believable. And this is as good a television as you will ever see. 
Um, and I cannot stress the importance this match has on wrestling history just because it's just so unique. And you can only do it the once. You can't come back and keep doing this. <laughs> it just doesn't work. And you have to have people as good as Lawler is at reacting to Funk and Funk is for setting the stage. What's your thoughts on this one, John? Yeah, I bloody loved it. It was hilarious watching Funk just run down Jerry Lawler for not getting to the arena on time. He's having a nice back and forth with Russell. And then, yeah, we get a, an all-and-out brawl that can take place because there's no one you have to, like, watch out for. They're throwing chairs, throwing each other, just going to town and back on each other. And as you said, it's got the really rather unique finish of Funk just being stabbed in the eye by his own hubris. <laughs> and he's just, it's not like, shit, we've got a proper finish here, so we'll just end it there. There's obviously no one to sort of count the fall or anything like that. It's just Russ like, all right, that's it. We've had enough. You've got Funk narrating for the crowd by just doing his own sort of commentary and his own interactions and his own noises as he beats the shit out of Lawler. It's just a good time, and it's well caught, like well orchestrated. As you said, it's put together perfectly for television. It's not just a, oh, yeah, we had no, no crowd, so we just threw each other around for three minutes and it was over. This is a, like a great example of what you can do with the right production. It absolutely is. I mean, Lance Russell was the best wrestling commentator I heard for a long time just because of his ability to tell a story that was unrelated to the match you were watching but illustrated the match you were watching and you didn't realize you were being told a story because he would break off in the middle to commentate on the match and then go back to telling the story <laughs> he used to do the WCW Pro commentary um for international audiences so those those when he when the USWA well Memphis wrestling essentially folded uh, he left for WCW and he did a lot of TVs with Bob Cordell and then by himself. And he was one of the few guys in WCW. Even like, And you, you think about that commentary crew in 1989 in WCW. They had Chris Cruz, who was a great commentator. Apparently not such a great guy these days, but what can you do? They had Lance Russell, Jim Ross and Bob Cordell and Gordon Soley. It really doesn't get any better than that as far as a commentary. As a co as I, was, so I was talking about this with uh, Ben Spindler, one of the early days of the Troopany show. And he said, that's the reason why WCD we've kept losing money. They just spent money on commentators. Went, yeah, pretty much. They're the best commentary crew ever. You know, all of them were really good. And some of them were legendary status. I like four of them were legendary status. Bob Cordell's an excellent commentator as well. You know, it, but Russell just makes this match. And, and Lawler as well, coming out as the babyface in his full-on white gear as well. Just that sense of, you know, he is the hero on the white horse as far as the Memphis fans are concerned. So this is just perfect for him. So, yeah, you need to watch this match. You cannot not, we cannot do it as much justice with words, I have to say. Shall we move I on? Like we've said that a few times so far. We have. And, well, you know... Watch a Terry Funk match. You will guaranteed a good time. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Uh, we're going to go to 1986. And we're wrestling for the WWF Heavyweight Championship against the champion Hulk Hogan and the number one contender, Terry Funk. I'm not sure where it's from. It looks Boston Gardeny, I think. It's not MSG. It's Saturday night's main event, though. And this is a barnstormer. This arguably 
could be the best Hogan match from that era, from that first title reign I've actually seen. And we're talking like Andre and Hogan was on that particular run. Um, and there was quite a well, King Kong Bundy and Hogan was in that run. And that was a good match. You know, it wasn't dreadful. That cage match from WrestleMania 2. This was arguably one of the best matches I've seen Hogan in. It's not particularly long. It's only 10 minutes long. We don't get the full pomp and circumstance of the match. But Funk's made for Hogan. You know, Hogan is a big spot wrestler. You know, he, he tells his stories through pacing and, like, you know, his comebacks have to be in the right spot. And Funk, as a big-hitting protagonist, is ideal for that. You also forget how big Terry Funk is. Because <laughs> he's huge. Um, and he's taking traditional, like, big wrestling bumps, 1970s Harley Race, Terry Funk-style bumps for Hogan, which makes Hogan look like a million dollars. And this is great. And again, Jimmy Hart is managing Terry Funk. He was also managing Dory Funk, who was known as Hoss Funk for apparent reasons not known to himself. Um, and then they brought in Jimmy Jack Funk, who wasn't a Funk. Um, but yes, this was the period of time. Terry Funk, we've got Vince, and we've got uh, Jesse the Body Ventura on commentary. And Jesse using the phrase middle-aged and crazy, perhaps for the first time, or in the early times I heard him say it. Uh, but Funk looks amazing in this match, especially wrestling as a heel, because he's a purebred heel now. He can't do the things he would do with Lawler because Lawler was willing to go a bit further as far as blood and guts was concerned. And obviously this is WWF in 1986. It's a kid's show. And there's nothing wrong with that because they sold a lot of tickets. What's your thoughts on this one, John? Because I know you're not the biggest Hogan fan in the world. <laughs> Hogan was great at what he did. His legacy, not so much. But what, yeah. when it comes to stuff like this, it's always a fun time because... Like, Hogan relies on pacing. And when you've got someone as in the nose funk, he can make that match work perfectly, and he does. He gets beaten up at first, then comes back and puts Hogan through hell with, like, garden variety heel tactics. You get dick kicks and all that sort of stuff. It's it's a fun time. And he's obviously putting himself over as much as he puts Hogan over, because it's like, sure, his job here is to lose, but he's losing with style. And he makes Hogan work for it even if half of that is sort of through heel shenanigans, you still believe Funk is a threat. You still believe that Hogan's in trouble. And then comeback comes and, oh, no, not anymore, but still. Plus, it's funny watching Hogan win with a lariat. <laughs> you never... It's not a leg drop. It's not anything. But it's just, he just lariats Funk in the back. <laughs> and it's just That's like, almost, even commentary was... sort of like, that was a bit of a chicken shit move, wasn't it? <laughs> Axe Bomber was his finisher in Japan, but he did it to his he did it to his opponent's front. The camera True. work. This is an Axe Bomber from behind, though. So mm. this is this camera, camera work in this is really good as well, especially the ringside camera because they've got like two hard cams. So they've got one hard cam at one level and the hard, a hard cam higher up, so the hard cam at the lower level can move around a bit and follow the match. And they've got one ring one at ringside. So you're getting some interesting angles that you wouldn't normally get on the WWE show. I think that's probably due to the limitations of the the arena. It could be. It looks to me like it could be um, the Spectrum in Philadelphia. Also, Dave Hebner is referee. Who'd have thunk it? It's a long while since I watched a Dave Hebner, Dave Hebner refereed match. There we go. 
What do you think of his WWE run in general? Because he was there for quite some time. He did it for the money because he earned more money in this run than he did in his entire NWA run. You know, he earned more money for the one year he was with the WWE than he was his NWA heavyweight champion. Do you think it was worth his while? I mean, for the payday, sure. And it's not like he didn't go on to do even more fun things. It's like everyone deserves a little sort of breather period. And if this was Terry's breather period, then so be it. Like, I don't remember as as much of it as you do, but... At the end of the day, if you need money, you need money. And I'm not going to begrudge Terry Funk doing a year in WWE for a payday. I mean, he's one of the few guys who went there on reputation as Terry Funk. Everybody knew who Terry Funk was, therefore he didn't have to change his name. So that was was another advantage that he had other wrestlers didn't have. Um, And he had Jimmy Hart as his manager he'd worked with before. So there's all sorts of advantages to going. He did make friends whilst he was there, brilliantly. In the Dynamite Kids biography, him and Terry became close. And Dynamite uh, remembers calling him up on Christmas Day. Um, And he said to Terry, Hello, Terry, it's Tommy. I was just ringing you up on Christmas to wish you a Merry Christmas. And Terry replied replied back, Oh, Dino, you just ruined my day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sums up Terry Funk's sense of humor. Um, but this was also the time he starts building his film career as well. And of course, he would go on most famously to star in Roadhouse. Um, and there's been lots of like gifts and stuff of his film career come out in the last week, of course, which we can't remember, which we probably have forgotten. But he doesn't really surface in a major way until WCW in 1989, in the spring of 1989. Um, specifically to judge the last of the major series between Rick Steamboat and Ric Flair. Um, Steamboat and Flair had had the legendary series that they had, and their last match was to be judged by former NWA champions. Luthez was there. Terry Funk was there. I think it was Nick Bockwinkel was the other one as well. And after the match, when Flair takes the championship back from Steamboat, because um, Steamboat had, had pretty much done his run, he was kind of like one out and he wanted a break, and, and Flair went back to being the man. There was a promo and Funk interrupted Flair and, you know, said, if you ever want to try me again for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship, I'd love to have a go. And Flair Flair kind of brushes him off and Funk shakes his hand and pulls him in close and the microphone's there and he just goes, you don't think I'm good enough, do you, Rick? And then all hell breaks loose. Terry Funk beats up Major Boy Rick Flair and pile drives him through a table. You know, um, and the story of the summer becomes Funk versus Flair for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. Will he break Flair's neck again? The most dangerous man in wrestling. That's what Funk was portrayed as, and arguably it was true. Um, and he beat Flair beat him for the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. And then it came down to this match. And when I first started watching WCW, this was the match they were building to. You know, it's Troy, New York, Clash of the Champions 9. Nature Boy Ric Flair versus Terry Funk, TV time remaining, I quit match. And this is just outstanding. You know, it's, it features heavily on the uh, Best of Ric Flair DVD that w, the WWE did. Um, there's a lot of history on there. It's on this playlist. You can look at it. 
And as a standalone match, it's Flair at his very best in this period. I think this is, I've kind of got the bias of this is the Flair I knew as a child growing up or a young person growing up. I was a teenager by then. But he has all the poise. He kind of has his act down pat. And Terry Funk comes along and interrupts it. He can't have the standard Flair match. He has to have something different. No pinfalls allowed. So it's all about submission. And I'm not saying Funk drags this match out of out of Flair. He didn't. Flair went for it. He let loose. And it was not the standard Flair that you knew up to see. But Funk was the filter that enabled Flair to have this incredible match. The referee's Tommy Young, the legendary NWA referee. And he plays a big part in this match as well because of the way the match works. You have to have the microphone. And Tommy Young was the ideal person for this. No one had better ring presence than Tommy Young. And I love this match. Jim Ross and Bob Cordell. Uh, sorry, Jim Ross and Gordon Soley. Who could, it, could be better for a commentary team in a match of this magnitude? This is great. Just great wrestling. What's your thoughts on this one, John? Yeah, this is one of those fun moments where you see crazy bastard flair. Like, obviously it would come out more as he got older, but, like, this is one of those matches where you see Flair just let loose and try and have some hardcore fun. And it it basically becomes what you'd want an I Quit match between these two to be. It's not the most hardcore affair, but they're throwing each other on the ground. There's power drivers on the ramp. There's bloody all sorts of brawling and bruising and still limb targeting galore. It's It's just another fun time. And as you said, it's one of those matches Flair can only have with a certain type of opponent, and Terry Funk was the perfect opponent for that. You've got blood, you've got violence, and then eventually you've got someone quitting. It's a great made-for-TV match. And again, some really excellent camera work following these two just go absolutely crazy around the venue. You also notice that Funk is like stripped down. like When he was wrestling Hogan... And even wrestling in Japan, he's full on the thick set and he's leaned down an awful lot for this match, um, possibly because he's getting older and he doesn't want as much weight to carry around. But he looks much more like in main event shape here, uh, which I think helps. And this is kind of the body shape he kept for the most of the rest of his career. Um, but, you know, Gary Hart as well, as a manager of uh, Terry Funk, her heart turns on Funk at the end of this match when Funk decides to shake Flair's hand because he made a promise to everybody that he would do if he lost. Um, and Hart um, goes ballistic. And that was pretty much the end of Flair's career in WCW, except for the commentary gig which he took on and did with a plomb, like we said. Um, but he was a restless soul, was our desperado Terry Funk. And the next time we see him is the following year in the USWA. Now, there wasn't any matches of this particular run, but I love this run because this is the first time I saw him as a wrestler because USWA was on screen sport. So I got to see him wrestle for the first time in this period. This is a match with Jerry Lawler. It's just the end of the match and he just goes crazy and power drives everybody. And this kind of sums up the funk of this period. And I thought this was important to show. I think it's hilarious. It's like, what's that? You don't like what I'm doing? Have a pile driver. Oh, you want to come out? Have a pile driver too. And oh, pile driver for you. And it's just crazy, Terry. Just being an absolute bastard. And you get a pile driver. And you get a pile driver. And you get a pile driver. Yes. She's like, no one's stopping the pile drivers. (laughs) And it's like, it's USWA as well. We're in Memphis. We're in the Coliseum. You know, it's, 
it's still a big era of Texas wrestler. Well, USWA was then Texas and Memphis. So it was the kind of prime period for USWA as well. Um, but yeah, no, this, this, I just love this. It was just great. Just so many people in that building in 1990 for a USWA match. Insane. And it was still on, it was still on um, ABC television back then as well. Next, we move on to his next great period, which was ECW. Funk was a founder member of the ECW roster, um, not under Paul Heyman, but under um, Eddie Gilbert. Eddie and Terry had a longstanding relationship from USWA. And when Eddie uh, went to ECW uh, and took a couple of friends with him from Memphis, uh, he also took Terry Funk as well. Now, Eddie wouldn't be in charge for very long as him and Todd Gordon had a falling out and Paul Heyman took over the book. But the early days of ECW were very much in a traditional kind of um, Memphis-style kind of wrestling mode. And arguably, it always was. It was kind of Memphis on steroids, if you see what I mean. Um, and Funk was a traditional wrestling draw. And you look at those early cars and they had people like Dick Murdoch and Dory Funk and Jimmy Snooker and all these people on those cars. Um, and then when Heyman comes in, he takes over and, you know, suddenly we get the public enemy and Heyman's changing the game. And Funk is one of those catalysts as far as changing the James game is concerned. He's one of those guys that goes, this is the right thing to do for the business because we can't have these old guys just doing this forever. We have to move forward. And um, one of the key feuds that was kind of made the new ECW was Cactus Jack and Terry Funk. Now, this is one towards the end of Cactus's Jack's reign in ECW. It's just before he goes, pardon me, to the WWF. Um, and this was the anti-hardcore period of Cactus Jack and this match isn't perhaps everything you're looking for <laughs> in a wrestling match between these two. It is kind of what's available from this era. Um, but, you know, it's kind of indicative of the Funker in this particular period. You know, the first time they had a match, it's a well-documented in Mick Foley's biography, where um, he threatens Terry Funk that he's going to kick him all his ass all the way across this ECW arena. And Terry goes back at him. That's what I like about you, Cactus. You've always been a dreamer. <laughs> <laughs> and this is kind of in that vein, in the sense of, you know, you know who I am. You know who he is. Let's get to it. And that's really what this match is about. It's two people who are bitter enemies now having a match and going for it. And that's kind of the ECW ethos in a nutshell. Um, what's your thoughts on this one, John? Funnily enough, this is a match I've written about. This mm. is in the digest. I found this match a while back and I just loved it. It's so much fun. And again, it's got the famous funking branding iron. And as you said, it's maybe not their craziest contest. I mean, most people think of the IWA Japan exploding death match, which neither man's happy with, but... <laughs> That's probably one of the ones that people remember the most from, like, Terry Funk v. Cactus Jack. But, yeah, this is a great example of what the two could do if they would just let loose on each other. There's a lot of hardcore antics. There's a lot of weapons, spots. There's a table suplex. 
which is always my favorite move. Just like, hey, I've got hold of a tail. I'm just going to suplex it onto you. And yeah, they're just having they're having fun. Like they're supposed to be bitter enemies and they're taking the match really seriously and it's ridiculously violent, but they're having a lot of fun doing it. And you can tell. Yeah, this is, you know, this is this is probably arguably may have been the last time they get a chance to wrestle one another, certainly for a very long time especially if Mick stayed in WWE for the rest of his career, which essentially he did. I mean, it's the impact stuff, but generally speaking, we are talking the majority of his in-ring career would happen in WWE. Um, so there was a chance he'd never wrestle Kerry again. So, you know, you can tell they're into it. And it, again, it's about pacing. This match has a lot more in common with the Jumbo Saruta match in that sense, in the fact that they just don't touch each other for 10 minutes. <laughs> you know, they're kind of like, pacing it out, trying to figure out a way of getting going. And they get going in, the only difference is they get going up the rampway in, into the crow's nest rather than, you know, starting the match off in the ring. Um, but it's still the same kind of pacing ability that, you know, Funk had picked up wrestling Harley Race and wrestling Jumbo Saruta. You know, find that pace, find that groove, make everything impactful because you're not doing as much. Um, because obviously these things hurt. You want them to count. Still not keen on the head church off the head. They probably shouldn't have done that. <laughs> no, but then again, this was ECW and everyone was trying to push the limits of it before we knew just how bad that yeah. thing could be. Um, it's not been Actually, great for that... the long-term health of those people involved, sadly, but there we go. No. That that was something interesting about the Lawler series, actually. They kept bringing chairs out, but they were only ever aiming them at the legs and the back. You never really saw any direct headshots. It, uh, funnily enough, you know the night Lawler had his heart attack? Mm. Um, he was laying there while Ziggler dropped elbows on him. And he said, I remember back in the day where we used to hit each other and it didn't hurt, but we made it look like it did hurt. And now everybody hits each other and it hurts. <laughs> and I think that's the difference between then and then and now is like they made it believable but they weren't really hitting each other at all um, whereas now in some cases they're not hitting each other and it doesn't look believable and I, I, I kind of prefer that in a sense to them just hitting each other really hard which is the other option currently available to them like you know I understand, like, the rolling no-sell of Canadian destroyers is, like, killing the move. Fair enough. I understand that. But equally, I'd rather have 50 Canadian destroyers than somebody get hit in the head with a chair. So, but there we go. We had to include it on this list that John would have had a revolt. <laughs> a one-man revolt. Uh, Sushi Anita versus Terry Funk. The exploding no-rope barbed wire, exploding ring time bomb death match. The longest named timed named match in pro wrestling history. Except that BJW match we covered once upon a time. Sorry? Except that BJW match we covered once upon a time. Yes, That true. will forever go down in history as the longest named death match we have ever covered. Excuse me a second, because I've got a phone call coming through. Hello? No worries. Right, I'll have to edit that out. It's someone calling me about a meeting I'm supposed to be in that I've forgotten about. <laughs> But I'll call them back and say I got called into work. No worries. That's all right. Sorry, carry on. You were saying. Yeah, that BJW match will forever be like the longest named death match we ever covered. <laughs> I can't remember <laughs> all of it. 
But what do you um, think of this with this Sabeo match? I've talked an awful lot because you know this match better than I do. So you tell me what's going on with this match. So we have peak FMW. We've got Onita versus Funk. Sort of master versus pseudo student. And yeah, essentially Funk came to FMW. He came to Japan and he got robbed into some of the nastiest death matches you'll ever see. A lot of explosions, a lot of fire, a lot of time bombs. And here we have like the culmination of it all in what was essentially going to be a time bomb match. We all know what they are by now. We've all probably seen one or we've all laughed at one, depending on which ones you've seen. And this was supposed to be a blood feud. And as you'd expect, the match goes ridiculously hard. They're very physical with it. There's a lot of pacing, a lot of well-timed explosions, and obviously they're getting caught on the wire. Onita wins it before the time bomb runs out, and you're sort of like, oh, shit, just leave Onita. But he doesn't, because obviously he still has a lot of respect for Terry Funk. And this is where that sort of famous clip comes of Onita covering Funk with his own body as the time bomb goes off. That's the level of respect you've got on show here, no matter how badly these guys killed each other, which they did. That wire is not forgiving in the slightest, and Terry Funk is not a young man <laughs> in this match. They will still get up, shake each other ha other's hands, and, you know, try and protect each other. Ironically enough, this isn't the sort of nastiest moment from one of their matches. I remember there is a super-sized fireball from Terry Funk <laughs> in another one. I think that was a brief history lesson. Yeah, I think so as you're well. Better yeah. at, you're better at explaining stories and stuff. I just rattle off and ramble because, you know, <laughs> I just think this stuff's cool as hell. <laughs> well, I mean, Funk, again, like we said, Sushi Anita is one of, um, one of Funk's uh, protégés, like we said. Uh, Baba was one of the others, as well as Tenchiro Tenru. Um, and Anita always wanted to wrestle Funk. And of course, the No Rock Bar My match is something he picked up from Texas. Um, so it kind of um, all focused itself on this. And, you know, the relationship between Funk and Anita was well documented. And this match isn't really a babyface versus heel match. It's kind of a babyface versus babyface match. And Funk is such a massive star that this was just, you know, just brilliant. It's just really well done for what it is. And of course, it's pioneering because it's the first time, it's not the first time anyone's done this. Anita had done it with several other people as well. But it's the first time it's been done at this level, you know, with such a big star. I mean, you could argue that some of the other stars that Anita had managed to coax into this terror <laughs> were big stars. But this was kind of as big as it got. Yeah, it's like... You had arguably two of the greatest hardcore wrestlers at the time in a feud with each other in an exploding spectacle with an actual story running through it and history and detail. Because again, Terry Funk don't do anything unless it's got a point. A lesson that Matt Tremont seems to have taken from him because he doesn't do anything without a point. Just had to put that in there because I will always <laughs> put over Matt Tremont. Okay, so... We move on. Terry Funk versus Bret Hart, WrestleFest 1997. Terry Funk's last match in Amarillo, in his hometown. And this one is 
in, you know, it's on a Funk card. It's been organized with Terry Funk. It's been co-booked with ECW. Um, and this is him versus WWE champion Bret Hart, no disqualification. So there's a little smoke and mirrors, but this is kind of like Terry at his second wind peak, shall we say. You know, this is a match that's kind of a lot closer to the Harley Race Jumbo Saruta matches with a couple of elements of hardcore. But this is kind of a straighter wrestling match in the second half of the Funk career, as you can imagine. Bret Hart does explain in this before this match starts that he's another protege of the Funker. And of course, you also have as well um, the fact that Bret was also sort of trained as a kid with the Hart, with the Funk brothers. So there's lots of layers going on in this match. There's the presentation of the ECW Lifetime Championship uh, from Paul Heyman and Tommy Dreamer. But this is great. This is just, this is the wrestling of the era I grew up in, everything in one match. And it's not as fast as obviously the early stuff we talked about. It's not as violent, but this is a celebration of Terry Funk and that's all it needs to be. What's your thoughts on this one, John? Yeah, you've got arguably the two best wrestlers of their generations, one of which helped train the like one of which trained the other in yeah, just an absolute wrestling spectacle showcasing like the best of Terry Funk. It's just a nice entertaining like tribute to a wrestler everyone loves in his last match in his hometown. Whether that's actually true or not, we'll leave that one to the history books, but yeah, it's great for what it is. It's a fun time, and again, Bret Hart is clearly enjoying what he's doing. Um, and then we have a final match, which is Terry Funk versus um, Vampiro in the final kind of swan song section of his mainstream career. Um, he went back to WCW, became um, a bit of a trusted figure, amongst the WCW faithful, as it were, um, and then went on to have a feud as hardcore champion, um, or a reign as hardcore champion. And I kind of forgot about this match existing. And here is wrestling Vampiro, you know, uh, who was then one of the top heels in WCW, kind of coming in and taking over from CMLL. Um, and this is intriguing, because it's a bit weird. Uh, Vampiro was in a feud <laughs> with Sting at the time. Um, and then uh, he brought a petrol tanker to a wrestling show and attempted to set fire to Terry Funk um, in a hardcore match. Um, but Funk was kind of in a, uh, a feud with Eric Bischoff at the time, as you could, because everyone was in a feud with Eric Bischoff at the time. So, yeah, what's your thoughts on this one? It's just a mess. It's an entertaining, all-over-the-place mess. And I just love the fact that Vampiro is trying to set fire to Terry Funk. It just sounds like the most Vampiro thing to do. It's like, what's that? I'm going against a wrestling legend, right? I'm going to set him on fire. That's the best course of action here. I don't like him. Set him on fire. <laughs> and he really <laughs> does. Well, that's the funniest bit. Like, Sting has to make a very last-minute save, as does everyone else. Just like, get that torch away from him. There's too much gasoline on the floor. Move. Now, <laughs> there's just <laughs> lots of ridiculous fun in this one. And it, again, Terry Funk's only in it for the first half of it, but he still makes it a, an impact on it, doesn't he? <laughs> oh, 
why he does. Oh. It, it's still entertaining, even if it's rubbish. <laughs> but I mean, there's not an awful lot. Have... Sorry, Carol. We do have one more thing to talk about as well, actually. Because we didn't put it in the playlist. Because we didn't YouTube put it in the playlist. We, also put, we can't put it in the playlist because for some reason the owner of the video wouldn't let us put it in the playlist. But I think what really kind of like sums up the end of Terry Funk's career was something I watched on the Legends of Wrestling roundtable one night. And they were talking about Texas wrestling. And of course they get to Dorian Terry. And Dusty Rhodes was on that panel. And he said, last year me and Terry Funk, hanging from the rafters, they were as we had a barbed wire cage match, because like Terry was like 60, Dusty was like 58. They were still going at it. And Dusty versus Terry Funk is the ultimate babyface versus the ultimate heel for 80s wrestling, as far as I'm concerned. Flair was a great heel, don't get me wrong. But the embodiment of the wild man wrestler is Terry Funk. And that's what's great about this particular match. And that matchup, always will be in forever one of like the key wrestling matchups. The idea of 80s wrestling to me is Dusty Rhodes and Terry Funk. Um, you know, the, the, the stories that have been told, Michael Hayes told the story of like when they first went to Florida wrestling. Um, uh, they, they went down to Florida and they went in the men's room, him and Gordy and <laughs> Dusty and Terry were on the toilet and Terry goes dusty i had an idea last night and dusty goes what's that t that i think that going to the toilet and sneezing at the same time would be about the greatest feeling ever and Dusty goes you're about that right there t it's <laughs> <laughs> like they're just like just made for each other they were best friends and tore the hell out of each other and that's arguably the story of terry funk as a wrestler finding guys he loved to work with Rick Flair, Mick Foley, Dusty Rhodes, and just going to tear the hell out of each other for money. And art. Art especially. And I think arguably Terry's greatest greatest kind of um, what's the word? Contribution to wrestling was the phrase every match is a great match until it starts. And that can be said about so many matches. <laughs> What's your thoughts on that one, John? I just I loved the uh, commentary in the Dusty match because it, it's Funk doing his own commentary and all of a sudden it all goes wrong and Dory comes out, he just has no answer to it. He's just like, um, um. <laughs> and you just sort of like, you just remember how goddamn good at everything Funk is. Yes. From like writing matches to being in matches to commentating matches to everything. And like, the biggest thing he's going to leave behind is the influence he's had on so many people. It's like we haven't even touched on his MLW work, no. which pushed Steve Carino to even bigger heights. There's the Funk and Army, which kept like a lot of the ECW legends going. There was so many different elements Terry Funk brought to many different people's careers. Yeah, he we is like an absolute legend of this game, and he will continue to be a legend of this game even though he's gone people are gonna be talking about him in like the funniest of ways like forever like there's the infamous high spots network trailer where it's literally just the word forever for about 40 seconds but like it's fitting because people will talk about terry funk forever as long as there is wrestling there will be talk of terry funk 
he did it all. He helped write the book on like a modern era of wrestling. He helped pioneer hardcore styles. He helped carry companies into the next generation. He did everything. And his influence is never going to go away. No, he did everything the right way. The blueprint for what an old wrestler should be. And he was an older wrestler for a good 25 years. And we will miss him forever. So, Funka, we love you. Thank you for everything you did for us as wrestling fans. And thank you for everything you did for the wrestling business. Because it wouldn't be here without you. Last week, I went to Wembley Arena and I saw a spring stampede, well, stadium stampede match, which looked an awful lot like the matches you had in the 1970s. You know, all of that violence that we take for granted on AEW, the Funker was the pioneer of how to make that work. So thank you very much for listening today. John, where can we find you on the internet? You can find me at, I'm not calling X. Off Elon. Twitter handle John Deathman. That is the gate way to hell. It'll lead you to writings, ramblings, opinions. You can follow me at John underscore Deathman on Instagram. And you can find me on Patreon at Deathmatch Digest. From now on, that is going to be a free archive of writing, essentially. So, yeah, feel free to read along. You can find me at Sheriff Lone Star on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram, Sheriff Lone Star TX. I'm a Mastodon Sheriff Lone Star. You can find the show, Trooping Show, on Twitter and on Instagram. And on Patreon and Facebook, we are The Troopany Show. Uh, we're also on Discord as well, Troopany Show Podcast. Come find us there. We will be back next week. Not sure what the subject is. Probably talking Gleet because we might have a couple of Gleet shows by then. In the meantime, take care. We will see you soon. Bye. <laughs>